Thank you, David. And just to be clear, he's an outstanding student. And so uh, there wasn't a need for a whole lot of grace there because uh, he did an outstanding job. Thank you for being here. Uh, I love this series of lessons on James, and I love this topic. It's the kind of thing that uh, you might look at and think, how is this going to be practical? You know, how are we going to use this? And my prayer is this will be the kind of study that you'll find to be encouraging. Uh, there's a lot of facts, a lot of data that we can look at, but I'm in ministry, and I want to use this in a way that will build up the kingdom. And so uh, let's begin with the word of prayer, and then we'll uh, begin our study. Father, thank you for this beautiful morning that we're blessed to gather and to consider how wonderful you are. We thank you for the consistency of your word. We thank you for the perfect example of your son, uh, his works, his words. We thank you for the book of James and the way that this weekend we're being blessed in our study of this wonderful God-inspired book. And uh, we pray that you'll bless us in this time of study. And we thank you for this opportunity and for everyone who's gathered and uh, for the good things that are happening at Equipped. Uh, we love you and want to praise you and give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, <clears throat> I want to start with sort of a, an explanation as to why I think this is a really important topic for us to talk about. Uh, do I need to push this button? So I know oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's all right. There we go. Because I don't want to go over. That won't just become a hostage situation. <laughs> so... There's a reason why parallels between James and the Sermon on the Mount. I think there's at least three reasons, right? Every good preacher's got to have at least three points. Sorry, these are not alliterated. Uh, but I think, first of all, it's always good to talk about the consistency of God's Word and how what Jesus says and what the Spirit leads the apostles or perhaps others like James, the brother of the Lord, to talk about is consistent. And so in some ways, you look at a topic like this and you think, well, of course there are parallels between James and the Sermon on the Mount because the Spirit of God <clears throat> excuse me, uh, <clears throat> inspired all these works. He was working in the ministry of Jesus. He was at work in the ministry of James. You see the prominence that James has in the book of Acts, in Galatians, how he's mentioned as uh, being among the Lord's brothers in 1 Corinthians 9. And so, of course, there are parallels because these are all God-inspired materials. Secondly, I think it's always good to ask the question, why doesn't James seem to be more explicit with his earthly connection with Jesus? A lot of people look at James and they ask, why doesn't James talk more about being the younger brother of Jesus? He never mentions that. And perhaps we could speculate and say, as I said in a session yesterday, well, it's because he cares more about being, Jesus being his savior than necessarily being his brother, and that's the connection that matters. I also mentioned that Jude mentions being James's brother, but says nothing about being the brother of Jesus. And of course, these are two of the four who are named in Matthew 13, 55 and Mark 6, 3. They don't believe in Jesus before the resurrection, John 7, 5, but they are there in the upper room uh, with his mother in Acts 1, 14. It's the last time you see this group of brothers together. And we would assume that it's the resurrection that calls them to believe. But again, why doesn't James talk more about that? And so perhaps this lesson is one of the ways we can make a better connection between Jesus, our Lord, and James, uh, one of those younger brothers of Jesus. But the third reality, and this isn't something we talk about a whole lot, and I think it's uh, sadly a missed opportunity. Uh, we don't talk about what sometimes is referred to 
in academic terms as biblical intertextuality a whole lot. But intertextuality is the idea that scripture uses other scripture and that <clears throat> sometimes these passages have a conversation among them that reinforces the claims that are made, for example, in the Old Testament, when Paul, especially in places like Romans 4, Galatians 3, doesn't just cite scripture, but he uses the example of Abraham in both of those places. So we might ask, why does Paul cite that here? Uh, how does he use that material here? What point does he make in his setting about what happened originally in the context of Genesis? And uh, we also learned, I think, some things there about biblical interpretation. It might be that there's some really difficult Old Testament stories, or perhaps, especially when you see uh, the Law of Moses, one of the passages that James cites is Genesis 15, verse 6, which shows up all over Paul's letters as well. So my thought is, if I want to rightly interpret a passage like Genesis 15, 6, why not use the New Testament writer's interpretation of that passage as a way to appropriately interpret what's being said by Moses in that original context. I can't do what Paul did. I don't have the apostolic measure of the Spirit that allows me to interpret Scripture and write about it in his letters in the way he did. So maybe if there are parallels between James and the Sermon on the Mount, it helps us to better understand in James's context an appropriate interpretation of Jesus's words which would have been spoken 15 to 20 years earlier. I would also mention that I think there are some other lessons that could come out of this. Uh, I also think there's a textual relationship between James and Leviticus 19. Now Leviticus 19 gets quoted in James chapter 2, especially verse 9, uh, as a reference. And so certainly there's a quotation we could uh, make note of in this context. Actually, it's verse 8. But I think there uh, is more than that going on here. A number of the moral imperatives that we see James reiterate in this inspired letter are first stated in Leviticus 19 of what we sometimes call the holiness code. How God through Moses was calling Israel to behave herself in a way that was God honoring. Jesus uh, re-signifies that same message fulfilling, right, Matthew 5.17, what the law was all about not only in his ministry, but in his interpretation of Moses and his interpretation of the law. And so uh, I could also point out that what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 is sometimes referred to in Luke's gospel as the Sermon on the Plain. And there are several things that James says that not only parallel Jesus' teaching in Matthew, but also parallels what Jesus teaches in Luke. It may be the same message but it's spread across different settings. And so in other words, there's a lot of interaction between James and the rest of Scripture, which I think is encouraging. Uh, the apostolic doctrine is consistent. Sadly, there are people who might suggest that what Paul says about faith and works contradicts what James says, especially in James 2, 14 through 26. Or they might talk about a question like the roles of men and women in the assembly and suggest that what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 is contradicting what Jesus teaches or what he shows on that subject. I think anytime we hear someone suggest that scripture is inconsistent, that things are being taught by Paul that were not being taught by Jesus, 
that's problematic for a lot of reasons. And so perhaps a lesson like this helps to reinforce, if nothing else, the consistency with which God's word speaks, which I find to be incredibly encouraging. So one of the big questions when you approach James is, why doesn't James spend more time making the clear connection between himself and his older brother? And uh, I believe there is an explicit connection, even if James is not related physically to Jesus. I believe this is uh, the, the younger brother of Jesus who writes James. I think part of the reason this has been confusing is because people assume, well, if James doesn't make that clear, and given how important genealogical connections are in Jewish settings, uh, you would think, well, this is a way that James could point to his own ascribed honor. Now, he was born with a certain level of pedigree, and even in the Christian setting, that's a big deal. So we can speculate, maybe James is embarrassed because he didn't believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. Maybe James wants to make it clear, as I've already indicated, that it's about faith in Jesus, not about some kind of lineage connected to Jesus. Always I'm a little bit uncomfortable when we try to establish, like the Anabaptist tradition, some kind of trail of blood that leads to us back to Jesus. That doesn't seem to me to be as an important thing to focus on as having the faith that Jesus taught and ascribing to the apostolic doctrine and faith and practice. We could also point out that what parallels the teaching of Jesus in the book of James isn't limited to the Sermon on the Mount. A prime example of that is what James says in James 5 and verse 9 about the judge standing at the door. That's language that uh, explicitly recalls what Jesus teaches in the farewell discourse of Matthew 24. I mentioned verse 27, that's where that starts. But look especially at verse 33 of Matthew 24, and you'll see language that reads a lot like what Jesus taught on that, uh, what Jesus says compared to what James says in James chapter 5 and verse 9. So what am I trying to say? The parallels between James and Jesus are not limited to the Sermon on the Mount. They would include what's included in Luke and the Sermon on the Plain. They would include what's said by Jesus about a number of things, including that reality that the Lord will stop history, that Jesus will return. And so the reason I think the sayings, sources, contrast, or stories, contrast is important is because uh, even in Paul's writings, one of the things that Paul is criticized for is not talking more about the ministry of Jesus. Paul talks a lot about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice. But how many stories from the ministry of Jesus does Paul recall? And, and outside of the transfiguration reference in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter doesn't seem to do a whole lot of that either. And so it's sort of easy to cherry pick criticism against New Testament writers. And this is a very common thing throughout a Holy Writ in the New Testament, but especially in a setting where James has a clear connection with Jesus, he's getting a lot more critique, perhaps, than others. But if we start looking at what Jesus says and how that same message shows up in James, maybe that's give, giving us a healthier approach to asking this question. So uh, this is a quote that I found from Doug Moo in the Pillar New Testament Commentary on the book of James. And I think it illustrates that even in the academy, there's this awareness that sometimes the way that James has been criticized is unfair. In writing on this particular question, 
this is what Doug Moose says, and I love his first name. I just had to use him. But James, uh, James depends more than any other New Testament author on the teaching of Jesus. The author of the letter seems to have been so soaked in the atmosphere and specifics of Jesus' teaching that he can reflect them almost unconsciously. Now what I'd like to say is, to God be the glory, I'm going to give the Spirit of God the credit. He's the one that leads Jesus through his earthly ministry, especially in the Gospel of Luke. That's what Jesus talks about in the farewell discourse of John 14 through 16. But what Doug Moo's pointing out is that even in James, we see this. So let's get more specific. How do we see the teachings of Jesus, especially from the Sermon on the Mount, in the book of James? And I'm going to recommend this morning, there are at least four ways this reality is made evident. Now, I don't want to disappoint you, but there are no direct quotations. Now, there are some strong allusions. Part of what we struggle with when you're looking for the usage of the Old Testament in the New Testament, or the usage of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, is we might assume that if it's not a quotation, it doesn't count. Now, Richard Hayes, in a book titled Echoes of Scripture and the Letters of Paul, talks about three kinds of quotations of the Old Testament in the ministry of Paul. And I think this applies to our topic this morning. There are quotations. I've got the New American Standard here, the 95. I just can't go with the 2020 yet. They switched the legacy standard. I don't know. But uh, in the New American Standard, those quotations from the Old Testament are made evident when the text is put in all caps. Maybe you have an English translation that italicizes that. We have cross-references. So the quotations are really obvious, aren't they? But then you have allusions. You have passages like 1 Corinthians 10 where there are a number of parallels that Paul draws from the book of Numbers. He even talks about from Exodus Israel being, quote, baptized in the Red Sea. That's not a quotation. It's an allusion. He's alluding to the Old Testament. And then there are echoes. Now, echoes are the hardest to find. But the idea is that perhaps this inspired writer is so full of Scripture and so aware of by God's guidance of what's been revealed previously, that Scripture permeates the message of what New Testament writers informed by the Old Testament and the teaching of Jesus are saying. So this is difficult because we're not able in a surgical way to take the scalpel and necessarily always discern what from James is coming from the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to give God the credit either way. Um, I teach a class at Freed Hardeman called Critical Introduction to the New Testament. Sorry to bring that up, David. It may give you some bad flashbacks. But we were talking about Hebrews on Wednesday. An hour and 20 minutes on Hebrews. We talked a lot about authorship and all the suggestions that have been made on who wrote Hebrews. And I still love using Origen's quote on that question from the second century. God only knows. Well, God knows and God is the author. <laughs> we, can, we can ascribe to that. And so when you think about this in James, there are no quotations, but we have direct statements, a number of them, that strongly parallel what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You have that whole section at the end of James 2 on not just hearing, but being a doer, and how that is a strong parallel not only to Matthew 7, but to Luke 6 and Luke 11. You have several of the Beatitudes, which we of course know and love from the beginning of Matthew 5, that show up four of them in the book of James. And then you have several other themes. Now, this is why James is sometimes referred to as 
the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's very difficult to outline. And if you're looking for a systematic way that James moves in the order that Jesus says these things in the Sermon on the Mount, and they are then displayed in the book of James, that's not the way this happens. Uh, it's, it's a very uh, fluid uh, way of referring consistently to the big themes of Jesus' most famous sermon. And so uh, let's look at these examples. Uh, this is what we're here to do. Let's start with these direct statements. And if anybody wants these slides, I'll be happy to send them to you if they're helpful to you. Here are the direct statements. And I've tried to highlight here in red the references from James and in blue references from Matthew 5 through 7. That's where the Sermon on the Mount shows up, obviously. But then there are some Old Testament references, especially with the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, and the Love Your Neighbor text. There's even uh, some parallels to the Sermon on the Plain as they show up in Luke. Now, again, if you were to compare these in the Greek, they're not exactly the same. James 5.12 is the closest we get, and I'm going to show you the Greek and English for that on the next slide just to demonstrate how it's not an exact quotation. So does James use the Sermon on the Mount? I believe so, but it's not a quotation. Maybe it's an allusion or an echo, those categories that Richard Hayes gave us earlier. So in James 1 verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. A great message about depending upon God rather than on oneself and perhaps in the context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which when I preach this, I love to think about, maybe this is a different way of doing this, the audience Jesus was addressing. When I sit at the feet of Jesus, I'm just reminded of his perfection and my imperfection, and it seems like such a contrast, even though I want to be more like him. But I think if you were to take the camera just temporarily off of Jesus there teaching this great multitude of people and turn it towards the audience, you would probably find there a lot of people who were struggling with the same sorts of things we struggle with. They're just in a different cultural setting. And so perhaps there were people in Jesus' audience that needed to be reminded as he teaches very plainly in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. It's primarily in the, the asking. Now there are uh, over 50 imperative verbs in James. In five chapters, he's very direct. 46 of those are simple commands like we have in English. Uh, this is actually a third person command, which we don't really have in English. That's why it seems more hortatory. Let him ask of God. But it's parallel to what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7. Then you, of course, have the love your neighbor text, which is a quotation of Leviticus 19, 18, and interestingly shows up as sort of bookends uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, where in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, Jesus there plainly says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but you should love your enemies. Verse 44, and pray for those who persecute you. Then later in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, he reiterates the same reality, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Whenever Jesus brings this up, it's in the context of fulfillment. Well, how does James reference this passage? Well, if you look at James chapter 2, especially in that context of partiality, he says, he calls it the royal law. You're fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, 
This isn't a quotation other than these words from Leviticus 1918. Again, the Holiness Code, which I think shows up throughout James, especially James chapter 2. But even though Jesus doesn't use the word partiality, it's the same message. It's the same thing, I believe, that Paul strives, especially in Romans. I think that sometimes in our rush to make Romans appropriately about salvation, we might miss the social aspect of Romans and how much of that is about unity between Jews and Gentiles who've all been redeemed in Christ. You get this citation of Exodus 20, don't murder, don't commit adultery. That shows up twice in Matthew 5 where Jesus does the classic, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, and how James also references these two commands in James chapter 2 and verse 11, going on to say, now if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Uh, again, as he referenced that earlier in James 1, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and even though this is not a quotation, Jesus obviously alludes to both of these commandments and in doing so calls us to a higher standard and invites us rather than thinking about adultery as simply a sexual act to be people who are pure of heart and even make sure the way we look at another human being uh, is prioritized by holiness rather than lust doing something similar with murder talking about turning the other cheek showing mercy it's very much the same message and again, we're not surprised because we know the God who inspired this. You can move down and talk about them not making snap or unfair judgments. Of course, we know Matthew 7, 1. That's probably the most quoted Bible verse on television. But in context, we understand that what's being said there is don't make snap judgments. You can make judgments that are discerning and that are fair based on the fruit that a person is bearing. That's very much what James talks about. In James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where he says, Don't speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against the brother and judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And then, of course, in James chapter 5, verse 9, we see the same emphasis. Don't complain against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. The judge is standing at the door. And the fact that that language shows up in Matthew 24, 33, I think lends itself for us to see the, the strong connection, even if it's not a quotation, uh, between what Jesus taught and what James has to say. Now, in terms of, uh, we, we sort of want to ask, okay, where does the parallel show up? So I've got the Greek from James 5, 12 and Matthew 5, 34 and 35 at the top of the slide. And then this is the uh, ESV or New American Standard. I can't remember which of the ones I used on the bottom half to show you the translation. And so even though what Jesus says about not making a rash vow, not swearing by something on earth because you are going to keep your word based on your commitment to God, again, it sounds a lot like uh, what Jesus says. What Jesus says sounds a lot like what James says. And so is this evidence that James uses the Sermon on the Mount. I believe it's a strong enough illusion for us to see that there is consistency and awareness of what Jesus taught. I'm not surprised by that. Remind, remember how many times in 1 Corinthians 
We often only look at chapter 11, 23 through 28, when Paul talks about that which he received from the Lord, he's passed on to us with regard to the Lord's Supper. But throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul seems to have an awareness of not only what Jesus did, but what he taught. And the Apostles' Doctrine is an accurate reflection, of course, of that same teaching. So, is it a quotation? No. Other than where the law gets quoted, uh, the commandments, the royal law, there's no explicit quotation. But I think it's interesting that there are four places in James where the Old Testament is quoted, and two of those also show up in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, perhaps one could make the argument that these passages are so familiar that, of course, they would overlap one another. But it seems to me that there's more of an intentionality tied to this, especially in the context of James 2, 1 through 12, where we're talking about partiality. That's at the very heart of what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was about, especially in chapters 5 and 7. Notice I haven't referenced Matthew 6. It is interesting that I think James was likely aware of the whole thing, even though perhaps he himself wasn't present. We don't know. We do know that he and his brothers and mothers showed up in Mark 3 when Jesus is in the crowded house and a messenger comes to Jesus and says, uh, your family's outside. And the word Mark uses there could be translated berserk, right? They're, they're afraid you've gone berserk. And of course, Jesus looks around and says, who is my mother and sister and brothers, you, those who believe? And so we do know that his brothers interact with him some during his earthly ministry. Were they there for the Sermon on the Mount? We're not told, but I, I also think we would be remiss not to mention that even though the gospel accounts that are written down probably aren't written until the 50s, 60s, maybe the gospel of John as late as the 80s, uh, that teaching was already being circulated through oral tradition. These stories about Jesus, these teachings of Jesus were already being shared through the God-inspired testimony of the apostles who are speaking and teaching the apostolic doctrine, the reality of what's very much connected to the ministry of Jesus. But in terms of these direct allusions, it's just interesting, speaking of biblical intertextuality, that two of the four times James quotes the Old Testament, those same passages are quoted in Sermon on the Mount. And that the applications are much the same. I think that's really interesting. This uh, could be its own class but I think if you were wanting to teach on this in a congregational setting, this is what I would probably use because it allows you to explore a fuller context. So far, I've sort of been jumping around. And I think what that shows is there's a foundational connection between what James teaches and what Jesus taught, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's in James 2, 14 through 26, which interestingly, theologically, is probably the most controversial part of James. And it's amazing how theologians have wrestled with, especially maybe comparing Galatians 3, 1 through 10, where Paul makes it clear three times that a person cannot be saved by works of the law, namely circumcision. And then how James says that faith without works is dead, James 2, 17 and 26. And so scholarship wants to yell, this is a contradiction. Paul taught you can't be saved by works. James taught, you're saved by works. Well, that's not what James taught. Maybe a simple way, you've probably used this before, of noting the difference. I think Paul's talking about how you get in to Christ. And we know that baptism 
is a work of faith and submission, but it's not a meritorious work. We need to be careful how we talk about that. That it's an Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 reality. I'm responding to God's grace through faith. It's a death, it's a burial, it's a submission. I'm being buried with Christ. And so even with baptism, we want to make sure we teach that in a way that's accurate. But what we're talking about here in James is not how I get into Christ. It's how I show I'm in Christ. The way I show I'm in Christ is serving with faith. I tried to uh, illustrate this one time in a, in a sermon where I used a prop. I don't do that very much. But in Baton Rouge, where I preached for six years, one of our elders was a funeral director. And uh, I don't know if this was a wise move or not, but I borrowed a, a casket. And I put it on the stage. And I, uh, on a Sunday morning, was going to have a, a funeral for a dead Christian talking about how faith without works is dead. Not not a good thing. Um, one of our sweet ladies dreamed the night before she died. And uh, so when she came into the assembly, we had to have an intervention. It was not a good thing. So if you, if you use this text, don't make the mistakes I did. And to make it worse, I put a big cloth over the top. So it was really creepy uh, on top of that. But made a lot of mistakes in ministry. But this... Uh, I think this foundational teaching, which even our kids know because they've been singing about the wise man and the foolish man, uh, this foundational reality is probably the most extended parallel between Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and what James includes where being a hearer and a doer. I'm thinking about Luke 11, verse 28, where Jesus talks about the blessing of not just hearing but responding to that and acting. On that, this is, I think, uh, where I want to spend the most time. But unfortunately, I'm almost out of time, so I'm going to move on uh, to the third connection. What about those beatitudes? Now, notice how these are James two through four, and that if you compare them to the beatitudes, they're not in sequence. So I'm not proposing that James takes a source and copies it. I don't know that there's a direct dependence relationship. We often struggle with this, like with 2 Peter and Jude or Ephesians and Colossians, when it seems like there's a literary parallel. And I know in the Ephesians-Colossians example, they only have like a verse and a half that's exactly the same. And it's where Paul refers to uh, Tychicus and uh, how that letter is being delivered uh, at the very end of those epistles. So I'll, I'm not arguing for literary dependence. But if you know the Beatitudes... And you go to the book of James, it is interesting to uh, see the connection. When in James 2 and verse 5, when we know what Jesus says about blessed are the poor in spirit, James says, listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? I think that's a great definition of what it means to be poor in spirit. Or perhaps the James 2.13, which we've referred to already. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does Jesus say about the merciful? Blessed are those who are merciful. What's the promise that he makes there in Matthew 5? It's interesting to me that this is something that James also talks about. Uh, not only as he describes in this context, he says, Matthew 5.7, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. James says judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In both of these contexts, 
It's not just about showing mercy, it's about receiving mercy. Now, in some ways, we reap what we sow. The James 3.18 connection. We haven't spent much time in James 3. All this emphasis on wisdom. Uh, that verse reads, The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. What should ministry look like? And then finally, James 4 and verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Not a quotation of Matthew 5, verse 8, but blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And so, are there quotations in James from the Sermon on the Mount? No. I think, again, the closest we get might be James 5, 12, about oaths. It might be that extended treatment of not only being a hearer, but also a doer that we see from, from Matthew 7, uh, paralleled, of course, over in James 1. Uh, but you've got direct statements. You've got clear connections to the Beatitudes. You've got that extended section that's tied to being both a hearer and a doer. But then you've also got this. And uh, I know that that may be hard to see, but just as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount offers for us uh, an optimistic picture of what wisdom from above can accomplish. People talk about how practical James is. Have we ever made note of how practical the Sermon on the Mount is? Jesus spends time engaging the law, but as he does so, notice these themes. So uh, in yellow there, I have where this is spoken of in James. And I tried to follow the order of Matthew. And so even if there are Lucan parallels, I started with where Jesus starts. That seemed like a good thing, with maybe a, a few exceptions in there, but they're, they're almost in, in the order of what's being said as you progress through uh, from Matthew 5. And, and then, of course, uh, when we get to the bottom of this list, it may look a little different because I actually alphabetized it. But what does Jesus say about enduring trials? Well, actually, a lot. This is where I think that proverbial, difficult to outline, um, teaching that is generally optimistic. There's pessimistic wisdom like in Job and Ecclesiastes. There's optimistic wisdom, especially in Proverbs. And, and so this is proverbial. It's optimistic in general where we talk about enduring trials and judgment, how to listen, how to be patient, how to pray, how to use our wealth, how to use our tongues. Uh, wealth and riches there parallel one another pretty closely. But there's a bit of a distinction because it's not just about how I use my money, it's how I got my money. You know, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money. And it seems that Scripture talks about both how I've earned it and how I'm using it. Jesus addressed both of those realities. James addresses both of those realities. And then there's that wisdom from above. And, and so I think when you take all of these together, um, again, there's, there's something to delight in we consider the way that Jesus is teaching and then of course James as we see this uh, book about Monday through Saturday religion play out how there's some wonderful parallels here so let's draw this to a conclusion should we be surprised at the consistency of God's word no but I think the reason this is important in James is because uh, okay I'm probably not going to get up at Estes and preach a sermon on connections between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. 
But I know that there are Christians who would be encouraged to see in a setting where tragically we've often built a wall between gospel and epistle. And we may have assumed that the epistolary, okay, 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament are letters. And so there's a lot of theology that's connected to what these inspired writers were saying in context where we may not always know a lot about the readers. And James is one of those places. We don't know a whole lot about the original readers of this letter other than James called them adulteresses in James 4, 4. And clearly they were struggling with some things that we may also struggle with. But isn't it wonderful to know that whatever his audience was composed of in terms of diversity, whatever they were struggling with, the Spirit of God saw fit to reveal to that audience through James a message that was very much consistent with what Jesus said to his hearers all the way back in Matthew 5. So maybe this, uh, I don't want to use this out of context, but maybe this is a Hebrews 13, 8 place where we're reminded that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. His message doesn't change. And in some ways, even if culture and technology and what we might talk about changes, in some ways, humanity struggles are still the same. Sin is our primary problem. One of my concerns, I, uh, with the lectureship at Freed Hardeman, I, I sit up there sometimes and I think about who's in the balcony, our students, and who's on the main floor, our guests, and how there's a bit of a generational divide. And how do we speak to all these people? And I think there's a temptation to say, I know I'm chasing the rabbit, but I think this is important. There's a temptation to say, well, you know those boomers, they need this, and those millennials need that, and those Gen Xers need this, and I don't want to disrespect our differences, but it seems that part of what a lesson like this calls us back to, when we see what Jesus taught and what James wrote, two very different audiences, is that regardless of our generation, regardless of our race, age, or gender, We've all got the same sin problem, and we all have the same solution. And if we spent more time talking about Jesus and less time talking about all the things that divide us, it might actually help build up the body. And the New Testament gives us a really beautiful picture of how that works. And so the book of James, as I've noted here, is well connected to the rest of Scripture, including Paul's writings. I don't think there's any tension there at all. We just want to see drama among the apostles. I don't mean that for us. Just scholarship in general has, uh, for example, taken that moment in Galatians 2. Remember that when uh, in verses 11 through 14, Paul rebukes Peter to the face because Peter was acting one way when the Jews were around and another way when they were not around. I think the only reason Paul tells that story is because he's wanting those readers in Galatia who are struggling with whether or not they should go back and be circumcised. Paul mentioned circumcision 13 times in six chapters. It must have been something that was on their minds. He, he's using that to say, here's how important truth is. I'll even rebuke Peter to the face if I have to because truth matters that much. Well, if that's true, then how could Peter, after Paul dies, I think that's what's going on, in 2 Peter 3, talk about Paul's writings as not only being difficult, but also being scripture. It seems that there's reconciliation there, much like we see with Paul and John Mark. So scholarship wants to make a big deal about there being 
some disparity between James and Paul or perhaps James and Jesus because we're always looking for drama. And if anything, I hope you hear, there's no drama here. There's consistency. It's God's revealed will. Two of the Old Testament passages quoted in James are also quoted in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not just the quotations. It's the way Jesus unpacks that, and it's the way James unpacks that with consistency. And finally, we might ask, what are the implications for inspiration and the nature of the truthfulness of God's Word on the basis of what we're saying here? You've got a guy who didn't believe in Jesus and he had a front row seat to a lot of the things Jesus was doing and claiming. But he came to believe after the resurrection. He never mentions being his brother, but he sure takes a lot of time to talk about the same truth that Jesus described in the midst of his teaching and ministry. That's why I think it's important to talk about parallels between James and the Sermon on the Mount. See the consistency of the Word of God and be encouraged. Uh, the intertextuality. Maybe we close with this. Whenever you're reading the New Testament and you see an Old Testament reference, don't skip over that. Ask, why did the inspired writer use this inspired text here? How did they use it? Why did they use it? Now, maybe that sometimes we can't answer all those questions, but I think there's a reason why we see these parallels in James. And if anything, it calls us back to the consistency of God's revelation. Now, there's a lot more we can say about this, but it sounds like uh, the other class may have dismissed it. We need to do that too. And so uh, thank you for being here and for encouraging me and for taking part in this study.